Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. confessing as we've just sung that our our hope is in Christ alone it's in the righteousness with which he has provided us through faith in him his perfect life his substitutionary death his glorious victorious resurrection all of it securing and sealing our salvation and so we praise you Father, for your infinite love to send your Son. Jesus, we worship you that you humbled yourself to become obedient to the point of death. Spirit, we praise you that you've opened our eyes to see and behold Christ. We could never be thankful enough. And now, as we come to your word, we ask, Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Unfold and open your truth so that we would be changed. So that we might be conformed more into what we see here. That we might be more conformed into the image of the one who died for us, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So bless this time. Bless the preaching of your word. May your church be edified and built up, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5. And this morning, we come to really what is sort of the end of our series within a series. Um, Next time, we'll be back to just the series, (laughs) because uh, this week, we come to the end of what's sort of been a a mini-series in the Beatitudes, you notice there, chapter 5, verses 3 to 12. And next week, we're going to move in more broadly to just our series on the Sermon on the Mount here in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so we're looking this morning then at this final beatitude in verse 10. Notice where Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted. So we're looking this morning at this topic of persecution. And shockingly, Jesus is going to say to us this morning that the persecuted life is actually the blessed life. The life that has the blessing of God, the life that has the the favor of God, the life that God smiles upon is actually the persecuted life. Now think about that, if you would, with me for just a moment. How, how upside down is that? I mean, how backwards is, is that? And yet, this is what we've seen here in the Beatitudes, isn't it? That the lifestyle, the, the characteristics of Jesus' kingdom citizens, if you're going to follow him, 
If you're going to have the favor of God and the blessing of God on your life, is a life that will be completely different. It's a life that will be completely countercultural, and it won't feel very blessed. And perhaps no other beatitude in this list seems as backward as this last one. Blessed are the persecuted? And so then we're going to be looking at this topic of persecution this morning, of what it is, why we should expect it, and how it is, truly, according to Jesus here, the blessed life. And so then as as we come to the end of this list of the Beatitudes, this eighth and final Beatitude, let me just, if I could, begin this morning by highlighting for you some of the unique features about this last beatitude before we read our text here in just a moment. Some of the unique features here of this last one. First of all, I just want you to notice with me the length. Just notice the length of this last beatitude. It's longer than any of the other seven that we've looked at so far. In fact, notice how Jesus is going to state it one way in verse 10, And then he's going to state it again a different way in verse 11. Isn't that interesting? Look there, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then again in verse 11, he's going to state it a different way, another way. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So he states it, and then he states it again. He repeats himself twice. Now, why? Well, I think it's because he wants to emphasize something here. He wants to see the importance of what he's about to, what he's saying here. One Puritan commentator believed that the reason Jesus repeats himself here in verse 10 and 11 is because this statement is so incredible. It's so incredible that he has to repeat himself. The blessed life is actually the persecuted life. So just in case you didn't hear me, let me state it again. That's the first interesting thing. Here's the second interesting thing. Notice notice how Jesus moves here from the third person plural in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted to the second person plural in verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. He individualizes it. In fact, it's, it's only this last beatitude here, verses 11 and 12, that Jesus transitions now from the second person singular you In other words, I think what he's doing here is he wants to personalize it for you. And so it's almost as if he's moving here from this more broad, more general, more generic description of those who are citizens of the kingdom in verses 3 to 10, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. But now here in verses 11 and 12, he wants to zero in. And he wants to apply this last beatitude specifically to you, to his disciples and to us. Blessed are you. Why? I think it's because he wants all of these beatitudes and specifically this last one to feel very personal. 
to feel very specific. Blessed are you. And that's going to be really important, I think, as we talk about this issue of persecution. Here's the last thing to note just about this interesting feature about this beatitude. Note, finally, that we come now to the very first commands in the Sermon on the Mount. Up to this point, verses 3 to 12, it's, it's been all indicatives. It's been all pronouncements of blessing. It's been all descriptions of the blessed life. But now here in verse 12, we come to the very first command. What are we to do when we experience persecution? What are we commanded here? Look there, verse 12. There are two commands, two imperatives. Rejoice and be glad. When you experience persecution, you are commanded to rejoice. Now, how is that even possible? Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be commanded to do several things. We're going to be commanded not to retaliate when we're wronged. We're going to be commanded to love our enemies. We're going to be commanded to pray for those who persecute us. All commands to do something, all some actions. But here in verse 12, we're commanded to feel something. Rejoice. Be glad. How's that possible? How can you command a feeling? How is that humanly possible? Because it seems impossible, and it is, humanly speaking. So in verses 10 to 12, I think they have a lot to teach us this morning about persecution and how it is actually the blessed life and how we can have joy and gladness in the midst of us. And I think what Jesus wants to do here is he wants to transform our understanding of persecution. He wants to change our minds about how we view it. And he wants to change our hearts about how we feel about it. So that we might see it as the blessing of God. And it would cause us great rejoicing. Let's read it together. If you have your place there, although we're only looking at verses 10 to 12, I want to, for the last time in this series, read the Beatitudes in their entirety. Would you stand as we honor together the reading of God's word corporately? Beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You can be seated this morning. 
as, as we come now to this eighth and final beatitude here this morning, we've seen over the last several weeks sort of the flow, the order, the, the interconnectedness of these eight, haven't we? If you notice there, again, in verses 3 to 5, we saw three beatitudes of need. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. All attitudes expressing our neediness, our our dependency upon God. And then in verse 6, notice we saw this central beatitude of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And we said that this is really the centerpiece of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Not just the Beatitudes, the entire Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus is describing here the kind of righteous life that's necessary for his kingdom citizens. Necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in verses 7 and 9, we saw three Beatitudes of action. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And all seven of these beatitudes, we said, are marks, they are traits of who we are as disciples of Jesus. This is true Christianity. This is what a real Christian is, and it it flows, it radiates from the inside out. From who we are to what we do. But now... Here in this final beatitude, notice, it isn't so much about who we are as it is something that we should expect. It's not so much a characteristic of a kingdom citizen, but the reaction and the response we should expect from this world if we pursue this kingdom lifestyle. In other words, if you exhibit these three beatitudes of action and you exhibit these three beatitudes of need, and if you hunger and you thirst for righteousness in your life, then you should expect persecution. It is the norm. It's not abnormal, it's the norm. In fact, look there, verse 11. He doesn't say, blessed are you if, if others revile you, if others persecute you. What does he say? Blessed are you when you are reviled, when you are persecuted. It isn't a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Persecution is the expected response for every kingdom citizen. Jesus assumes here the certainty of persecution for all of those who seek to live this righteous life that's described here in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, why is that? Why is it that the one who exemplifies, the one who lives out this life that he's been describing here and will describe, these characteristics listed in verses 3 to 9, why should they anticipate, why should they expect persecution? Well, think about it. In verse 3, if you're poor in spirit, that's going to run counter to the pride of the unbelieving heart. Because this world prizes self-sufficiency. It doesn't prize neediness, dependency. Verse 4, look there. If you mourn, 
If you're broken over sin, over your sin, over the sins of society, then it won't be appreciated by a world that loves the darkness rather than the light. Verse 5, if you're meek, if you're gentle, it's going to be seen as weakness in the eyes of this world. You will not be valued. Verse 6, look there, if you desire righteousness, if you want to be righteous, if you want righteousness in your life, if you want righteousness in the world, then it is going to be repugnant to a world that loves unrighteousness. Verse 7, if you show mercy, then it's going to be out of step with this merciless, grudge-bearing world. Verse 8, if you want purity of heart, single-minded devotion and love to God, it's going to be in contrast to the impure, self-focused love of this age. Or verse 9, look there, if you try to be a peacemaker and you try to reconcile relationships and bring peace, it's going to rub against this fallen world inclined to wage war. Do you see? It's countercultural and it's going to create a rub. So the expected result will be persecution because righteousness condemns others by implication. What I mean is, if you try to live righteously, others are going to feel condemned by you. No, Jesus' disciples, by their righteous life, will divide people. Some are going to be drawn, but the majority are going to be repelled. And so yet again, we see, I think, how this beatitude is both meant to expose us and encourage us, right? Because in verses 10 to 12, notice how it exposes us. Because if, if a disciple of Jesus, listen, never experiences any persecution at all, then it may be a fair question to ask if righteousness is being displayed at all in my life. It's exposing, right? But at the same time, beloved, I don't want you to miss the encouragement either because notice the promise to those who are persecuted. Verse 10, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, your reward is great in heaven. You get heaven. So let's understand better this persecution from three angles this morning. Three angles. First, the forms, the forms of persecution. What kind of persecution is Jesus talking about here? Second, the cause, the cause of persecution. What, what causes persecution and why should we expect it? And then third and finally, the joys of persecution. How, how can we obey this command to rejoice? So the forms, the cause, the joys. First, notice the forms of persecution. First of all, I, I just want you to notice here how this beatitude, Jesus' teaching here on persecution, shatters several myths about persecution. First of all, it shatters the myth that if you come to Jesus, you're going to be delivered from all suffering. If you come to Jesus, all your problems are going to go away. No. 
It shatters the prosperity gospel teaching that says that God just wants you to be healthy and God just wants you to be wealthy. God just wants you to be pain-free. God just wants you to be successful. No. Or that God loves his children too much to allow them to suffer. Shatters that myth. No. And it also debunks the idea that persecution is a result of sin or that suffering is a result of sin. Or that suffering is a sign of God's displeasure. No. In fact, it's verse 10. Jesus says it's actually a sign of his blessing. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Notice this quote from John Stott. He writes, The condition of being despised and rejected, slandered and persecuted, is as much a normal mark of Christian discipleship as being pure in heart or merciful. Every Christian is to be a peacemaker, and every Christian is to expect opposition. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will suffer for the righteousness they crave. So what is persecution, and what forms does it take? Well, look there, verses 10 and 11. Notice here how Jesus wants to broaden out our definition of persecution. He wants to expand the definition of persecution here, so that it isn't limited to physical opposition alone, right? Like being martyred, being imprisoned, being beaten. No, he, he wants to expand it. That's often what we think of when we think of persecution. And, and yes, No one would deny that those are forms of persecution. But persecution, as Jesus actually describes it here, is actually something much more broad than that. So what is it again? Well, many of us, as I said a moment ago, many of us think, I believe, have a very narrow view of persecution. We we tend to, to view persecution only in sort of extreme ways. So, for example, in China, Christians are imprisoned and physically tortured for their faith. House churches are being burned down. Pastors are being imprisoned. In North Korea, today, 50,000 to 70,000 Christians are imprisoned in labor camps because of their faith. 50,000 to 70,000. Right now where they're being tortured, they're being beaten, they're being starved. In Iran, an Islamic theocracy, Christians are facing horrible suffering, horrible persecution, the threats of death. In West Africa, in the Middle East, countless Christians are suffering violence and kidnapping and execution and forced conversions. This is happening all over the world, folks, right now. This this is the norm. In fact, get this, one out of every seven Christians live where their lives are in danger because of their faith. One out of seven. Or get this, it is estimated that more Christians have been martyred just in the 20th century than in all the previous centuries combined. This is happening right now. It's the norm. But we hear those things, and we might assume that alone is persecution. 
Jesus here, he wants to expand the scope. He wants to broaden out our understanding of persecution beyond just martyrdom, beyond just imprisonment, as awful as that is. And he wants us to see the many different forms of it. So what forms does persecution take? What is it? Well, look there, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's the same word in verse 11, where he says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. That, that, that word persecute or to persecute someone, it literally means to run after. It means to pursue. It means to chase. A good translation would be harassed. For example, Matthew chapter 23, verse 34, Jesus tells his disciples that they're going to be persecuted from town to town. They're going to be run out. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to be pursued. They're going to be harassed. But then, look there in verse 11. Jesus begins to elaborate and spell out what he means by persecution. Look there in verse 11. He repeats himself. Notice. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So persecution includes not only imprisonment, not only martyrdom, it also includes being reviled. It also includes being spoken of falsely as evil. That too is persecution, Jesus says. What does it mean to revile? Another translation would be to insult. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14, look here. Peter says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, it's the same word translated reviled here in verse 11. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Wow, it's almost as if Peter's been listening to Jesus. Reviled, it means insulted, mocked, to speak nasty things about you. Disparaging comments, verbally shamed. Any of you ever experienced that before? Isn't it interesting? If you watch, if you watch TV shows, if you watch sitcoms, how are Christians often portrayed in those, in those shows? Oftentimes, they're, they're very narrow-minded, they're they're bigoted, they're weird, they're mean, they're backward, they're mentally unstable. These are all forms of being insulted. These are all forms of being reviled. Well, look at verse 11 again. Utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. There may be Christians here this morning who have never had anyone lay a hand on them because of their faith. You've never been beaten, you've never been arrested, but their stand for Christ has resulted in friends and family saying all kinds of evil things about them. 
Christians who've been ostracized from their families, they've been cut off from certain circles at work, friends, neighbors, or who are no longer invited to certain things, or no longer open to come to certain events because of their, their faith, or because, you know, perhaps they took a particular position, they took a particular stand on, say, you know, homosexuality, or God's view on marriage, but Jesus says, listen, those are all forms of persecution. Now listen, no one is denying that one of those is more severe than the other, right? Martyrdom is much more severe. We all agree to that, but they're both equally persecution. And that is what Jesus is describing here when he speaks about persecution. And, you know, oftentimes we don't want to admit that. I think maybe, you know, maybe out of a sense of like false humility or we don't want to, you know, we don't want to minimize the more extreme forms. We don't want to admit that. But this also is persecution. Sort of like the guy who, you know, stubs his toe while his wife is in labor. They both hurt. And to deny this, listen, isn't being humble. It's being unbiblical. In fact... If you go to the parallel verse of verse 11 over in Luke's gospel, why don't you look there? Luke chapter 6, verse 22. Luke expands on this even more. And he says, Blessed are you, Luke 6, 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man? So whether they hate you, just in the attitude? And we see that in our culture, don't we? This cultural antagonism toward your faith? That's included, Jesus says. Or they exclude you, any kind, any form of exclusion here. At the ninth grade lunch table, because you follow Jesus, exclude you, that's persecution. So are you hated? Are you lied about? Are you antagonized? Or are you arrested, threatened, and harmed by family, by friends, by coworkers, by the broader culture? That is all real persecution defined biblically. Now, why am I emphasizing that? Why is it so important to understand the many different forms of persecution? Let me give you three reasons why. Number one, because if you don't label it as broadly as Jesus does, then we won't apply the comforts and the blessings as broadly as Jesus does. You see what I'm saying? In other words, if you think real persecution is only in the extreme forms, then we here in Western America won't experience the comforts and encouragements that Jesus intends for us to experience as well. Oh, that isn't really suffering. Those are the real suffering Christians. No, these are for you. Blessed are you. Everything from being hated to being hunted. 
Everything from being slandered to being slaughtered. Here's a second reason it's so important to know this. If your view of, of persecution is too narrow, it's going to undermine your assurance of salvation. If your view is too narrow, it's going to undermine your view of salvation or assurance of salvation. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse, 20, uh, verse 12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Anybody in here ever been martyred? Anybody been thrown in jail or beaten because of your faith? Must not be real Christians in here. No. Have you ever been hated because you're a Christian? Experienced any exclusion because of your faith? This is for you. Third, finally, reminding ourselves of the various forms of persecution are going to help you overcome temptations to avoid it. The temptations you experience daily to avoid it. In other words, here's what I mean. If, if you think persecution only happens when your life is threatened or when you're thrown in jail, then you're not going to see the temptations to avoid it that come to you every day. You know, you heard the classic example, well, what if somebody puts a gun to your head? Are you going to deny Jesus? Well, that's an important question. But how about when your place of employment passes a company-wide policy that contradicts your Christian faith and your Christian values and your Christian convictions? What are you going to do? Or how about for you stay-at-home moms when you're considered... You're considered boring or maligned because you're not going to join in the gossip of what's going on in the neighborhood. What are you going to do? Because that's much more likely to happen. Although I want you to hear me, though, the other isn't out of the question either. In fact, it's, it isn't an overstatement to suggest that the level of persecution is rising here even in America and those more extreme forms may be coming, I don't know, sooner than we think. But difficulties come, beloved, just in the course of normal life where your livelihoods and your jobs and your reputations and your relationships are on the line all the time. And we must be prepared. We have to be ready in a culture that's going to place pressures on you to compromise and conform where it's becoming more and more difficult to hold to Jesus' words and walk in Jesus' ways without some sort of social consequence. Those are all forms. Those are the forms of persecution. But then, it's also important to note the causes. The causes Jesus gives. And really what persecution is and what it is not. Second, notice the cause. What does Jesus say is the cause? Well, first of all, note that Jesus isn't talking here about all kinds of persecution. 
you realize that Christians aren't the only persecuted people in the world, right? There's a recent story I read about a Jewish school that was receiving a lot of flack for firing a transgender teacher. And at the same time, that transgender teacher was receiving death threats. Now, I'm not for transgenderism, but I'm also not for death threats either. Both are forms of persecution. You, you realize that? But Jesus, that's, that's not what he has in mind here. No, Jesus is talking about a very specific kind of persecution, namely the kind of persecution that's the result of following him. We're going to see this in just a moment. In fact, not all Christian persecution is blessed by Jesus either. Not all Christian persecution. Christians can be, at times, I think the technical word is idiots. Right? They, they act like idiots. I'm being persecuted. No, you're not. You're just being an idiot. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was actually really helpful here in his book on the Sermon on the Mount. And he outlines several things that aren't persecution, that we might be tempted to think are persecution. So what aren't causes of persecution? Listen to what Lloyd-Jones writes. Quote, it does not say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they're objectionable. It does not say, blessed are those who are being difficult. You know any like that? It does not say, blessed are those who are being persecuted because they are seriously lacking wisdom and are really foolish and unwise in what they say. We can bring endless suffering upon ourselves. We can create difficulties for ourselves which are quite unnecessary. We are slow to realize the difference between being offensive in a natural sense because of our particular makeup and temperament and causing offense because we're righteous. You see what he's saying? In other words, it isn't persecution when Christians are being mean or they're being harsh or they're being obnoxious or just because they have conservative political views. That's not persecution necessarily. Lloyd-Jones says it isn't persecution for a cause. He says it isn't persecution for a religious political reason. Look what he says here. He says, if you and I begin to mix our religion and politics, then we must not be surprised if we receive persecution. But I suggest that it will not of necessity be persecution for righteousness sake. And then he says, let us be careful that we do not bring unnecessary suffering upon ourselves. Oh, that's so wise. In fact, it's the exact same thing Peter says. First Peter chapter 4. In fact, look there. Look here with me. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. And the fiery trial he's talking about is persecution. Don't be surprised by it. 
But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also receive, uh, may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. You're just meddling where you shouldn't be meddling. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory, glorify God in that name. What kind of persecution is blessed by Jesus? Jesus says, it's the kind from following me. It's the kind from being like me. And I want you to listen to me very carefully. Politicians do not set the tone and posture for how we engage those who oppose us. And I'm very afraid that politicians are discipling the church in very negative ways. And we as a church are taking our cues for how to respond to those who oppose us from pundits and talk show hosts and politicians rather than taking our cues from Jesus and walking in the ways of Jesus and following the example of Jesus and listening to the words of Jesus. And there's a, listen, there's a strong temptation, I think, in our day to lean that way, but that's not the way of the kingdom. It's not by powerful coercion. It is by patient influence, friends. And I'm hearing lots of talk about violent overthrows of the government. And I don't get a whiff of that in the New Testament. Not a whiff. I know there's a lot more that could be said. I'm just not sure what I'm saying is getting said. I'm off my soapbox. So then, if that isn't the cause, what is? Look at verses 10 to 11. He gives two causes. Two reasons that his disciples will be persecuted. One in verse 10, one in verse 11. And they're almost synonymous. Look there, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Why? For righteousness' sake. There it is. Well, look here, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Why? On my account. So notice. Notice how verse 10, the reason of verse 10 and the reason of verse 11 parallel each other. Do you see that? What's the cause? It's for righteousness' sake, and it's on my account, for my sake, for my name. So what's unique about Christian persecution? Jesus says it's persecution because of me, for my sake, my name. It's persecution because you identify with me, and you follow me. What does he mean by persecuted for righteousness sake? Well, think about it in the context here. Because what he means is persecution that comes as a result of the lifestyle he's just described for you in verses 3 to 9 
and the righteous life that he's going to go on to describe in the rest of chapters 5 to 7. So it's persecution that comes as a result of these beatitudes being formed in your life. Again, you see this clearly. Notice in in the structure even of these beatitudes. He says in verse 3, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says it again in verse 10, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so everything in between there, this is persecution for righteousness sake for those who are citizens of the kingdom. So the righteousness, he means here, is his righteousness. The righteousness he commands. The righteousness in view here is our imitation of him. So really you could say that persecution then is the result of the collision of two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And the way of the righteous is going to be at odds with this world. And they will persecute you. Listen to what Jesus says here, John chapter 15, verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, you're part of a different kingdom now. But I chose you out of the world. He says, you'll be perse- persecute me, they will persecute. Remember, therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're also going to persecute you. Well, look here, Philippians 1. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in his name, but also suffer for his sake. There it is. My account, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. If you live according to my ways, my words, my kingdom, you're going to be persecuted. Now again, that's very exposing, isn't it? Because it, it, it makes all of us now pause and ask the question, if persecution is the norm, for disciples of Jesus. It's not the exception. If it's the norm for his kingdom citizens, and I'm not on the receiving end of any insults or slander or hatred from the world, something's wrong. Again, John Stott says, we should be surprised, we shouldn't be surprised if anti-Christian hostility increases, but rather be surprised if it does not. Something's wrong. So if I'm not experiencing it, am I living righteously as described here? Or could it be that I have retreated so far into my Christian bubble where everyone around me is Christian that I'm not actually being light in the darkness? Or have I learned how to keep my citizenship of the kingdom a secret? It's very exposing. Because all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Third heading, finally, the joys. The joys of persecution. We've looked at the forms. Martyrdom, imprisonment, yes, but also reviling 
insults, hatred, slander, exclusion. And we looked at the causes. It's because of your identification with Jesus, the characteristics of the Beatitudes, that kind of life is on a collision course with the world, so expect it. But now, notice Jesus doesn't leave us here. Because in verse 12, we come now to the very first commands in the Beatitudes. And in, really in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at verse 12. Why or, or what should be our response to persecution? Listen to verse 12. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. Verse 12, Jesus demands a shocking reaction to persecution. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice, the, the word literally means to be in a state of happiness, to celebrate, celebrate that you're being persecuted. Be glad, it means to be exceedingly joyful, to exult, to be overjoyed. So in other words, Jesus is commanding you to feel something. How do you command a feeling? In fact, this is the consistent pattern we see in the New Testament. This idea of joy in the midst of persecution. Do you remember what happened to the first Christians in the New Testament? When they experienced persecution? Look here with me. Go, go to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. The apostles are dragged before the council... They're, committed, they're commanded to no longer preach in the name of Jesus. But in chapter 5, verse 29, notice they say, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So what do they do to him? They beat him. Look there, verse 40. But then... Acts 5, verse 40, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. Don't skim over that. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Verse 41, then they left the pretense of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They're beaten and they rejoice. Or look at Acts chapter 16. Look here, Acts 16 verse 23. Paul and Silas. Acts 16, 23. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, beat them, and threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. They're chained, they're beaten, they're imprisoned. Look at verse 25. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They're singing joyfully. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter speaks of the entire church in this way. In 1 Peter 1, 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. He's talking about persecution. Look at this one. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. 
For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You go to Menards, and you buy all the materials you need to remodel your bathroom, you should consider yourself blessed. But then someone comes and attacks your home and burns it down. I'm blessed. How is that possible? Because that didn't seem humanly possible. And it's not. It's only supernaturally possible. How can it lead to joy and gladness? Look here. He gives three reasons. One is more implied. Two are explicit. So let's just look at the promises he gives here that are meant to, beloved, motivate you, encourage you, enable you to rejoice. Very quickly, reason number one. It's more implied, but it's because we are counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Verse 11, persecuted on my account. You're suffering for my name. It's because of your identification with me. We're being identified with Jesus himself. In other words, you're blessed because your persecution is evidence you're like me. I must be like Jesus if I'm being persecuted. I must be on the same path as Jesus. Again, Acts 5.41, rejoicing they had been counted worthy. So persecution is the proof, it's the evidence, I belong to Jesus and his kingdom. I'm, I'm a citizen of the kingdom. We don't rejoice in the persecution. We rejoice because of what the persecution says about us. So that's the first reason that we counted worthy. There's two more reasons, very explicitly. Look there, verse 12. Reason number two is because of our eternal reward. The reason you and I can rejoice in persecution. And listen, I know there's no joy in the actual persecution itself. No, the reason we can rejoice and be glad in the midst of persecution is the joy that you're going to heaven. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. Verse 10, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And what's your reward? Well, just notice what this great and glorious reward has been that we've seen promised to us already in the Beatitudes. Look there, verse 8, you're going to actually see God and not be incinerated. You're actually going to, verse 7, get mercy from God on that day. Verse 9, you're going to be part of the family of God and be called a son or a daughter of God. Verse 4, you're going to experience everlasting comfort where he wipes away every tear from your eyes and death and suffering and pain will be no more. Verse 5, you're going to be a co-owner of the universe with Jesus. 
Verse, not, verse 6, you're going to have eternal satisfaction and joy forevermore. All the treasures of the kingdom of heaven are coming to those who are persecuted. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the story of John D. Rockefeller. Said to be the wealthiest man of all time who ever lived. In today's money, value, the value of our currency and inflation, all that factoring in, he would have been worth $340 billion. Four times the worth of Bill Gates, edging out Elon Musk by $90 billion. And at his death, the general public didn't know how much it was worth. Kent Hughes writes this, the public became understandably curious about the size of the famous man's fortune. One reporter, determined to find out, secured an appointment with one of Rockefeller's highest aides. He asked the aide how much Rockefeller left behind. The man answered simply, he left it all. That may be the case for the fortunes of this world, but that is not the case for the Christian. Sweet, eternal, unending, satisfied fellowship with God forever. Every material, every spiritual reward you could imagine. So rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. Final reason, final reason you should rejoice, because you're in good company. Jesus wants you to rejoice and be glad when you experience persecution, because when you do, you are in good company with all the saints who've gone before you. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, That's reason number one. For, reason number two, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you see what Jesus has just done here? He's saying when you're persecuted, though it may feel like exclusion in this life, hated, harassed, you're actually included with the all-stars of the Bible. The, the varsity team. Think of Moses before Pharaoh. Think of Elijah before the wicked King Ahab. Think of Jeremiah before the false prophets. Think of John the Baptist before Herod. Think of Peter and John before the council. Think of Paul before Caesar. You, Christian, are associated with them. And you're on the exact same path to heaven as those godly heroes of the faith. Who Hebrews chapter 10 says the world was not worthy of them. And you two are bound for the kingdom just like them. You're numbered among them, not to mention you're numbered with the leader of which is one who loved you and gave himself for you to be despised and rejected and endure shame and persecution for me so that I could be brought into his eternal kingdom. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Let's pray.
Lord, more than ever now, we need the eyes of faith to see the reality of these glorious promises. So often in our, in our fallen condition, it's hard for us to visualize and see what it is you promised to your children. And it's only by your Holy Spirit enabling us to see. So give us eyes of faith to treasure these promises, these joys, in such a way that it would lead to rejoicing, it would lead to gladness, and it would lead to faithfulness to Jesus. That though we may be hated in this world, we have the favor and blessing of God. Do that in the hearts of your saints, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.